Our topic is Jesus coming back in our generation. I don't know if you watch much prophecy stuff on uh, what is called Christian television, uh, but they're all talking about Jesus is about to come back and he's coming back in our generation. Um, and we're going to look at that. Our passage is going to be Matthew 24, 34 to 35. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. <coughs> now, I'm not going to finish this today, but I, I'll get to a lot of it. We're going to look at what, what does Jesus mean there by this generation. And uh, we're going to also look at uh, the idea that Jesus must come back in this generation. Our generation comes from the, uh, the parable of the fig tree which Hal Lindsey and Volvert and a bunch of dispensationalists back in the 60s said, well, that refers to the Israel getting their nation back, but we're going to look at that. In our day on the topic of prophecy regarding the end times, the rapture of the second coming is uh, exceptionally popular. Writers such as Hal Lindsey have come up with an end time scenario that is now unquestioned in many evangelical and charismatic churches. I was charismatic in the late 70s, uh, in the 70s, and uh, that it was what I was taught. Hal Lindsey's book, by the way, sold 25 million copies, The Late Great Planet Earth, 25 million copies. Uh, it was a best-selling, quote, Christian book uh, in modern history. Very popular. And then, he, of course, he, there's a whole host of uh, prophecy writers and speakers now. <clears throat> Their views have resulted in two trends in prophecy buff circles. The first is to view our generation as the final or terminal generation. And this view is based on their interpretation of Matthew 24, 34, and 35. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. And then this passage is tied to our own generation by their particular view of verses 32 to 33. Now learn the, this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. And according to modern prophecy writers, and I, I have I don't know, I have about 30 commentaries on Matthew. None of them agree with this. <laughs> this is a new view. This is a particular view to modern dispensationalism. <clears throat> According to modern prophecy writers, the fig tree is a symbol of Israel as a nation. Therefore, according to Hellenzy and dozens of, dozens of modern books on prophecy, the chief sign that the last generation who will witness the second coming of Christ and the end of the world is the birth of modern the modern Jewish state in May 1948. So Israel became a nation in, in 1948. And that's seen as the... And Hal Lindsey in his book on the late great planet Earth says, this is the chief sign. This is the most important sign of Matthew 24. And it's telling us that uh, Christ is coming back in our generation. So expect the rapture, expect wars and earthquakes and all these things. <clears throat> Since the generation is regarded as around 40 years, and how Lindsay would define it as around 40 years, 
The earlier books on prophecy written in the 1960s and the 1970s spoke of Christ resuming in the 1980, returning in the 1980s, which obviously has not occurred. The rapture is going to happen around 1981, and I remember there was a track, the planets were going to align in the 1980s, and this was a sign of the second coming, and uh, there, was, there were literally probably over 100 books on prophecy that said Christ is coming back in the 1980s. There was like that track, the Jupiter effect in all these tracks that spoke about Christ coming back in the 1980s. Well, it didn't happen. The rapture didn't happen in 1981. The, Christ didn't return in 1988. Um, so what do they do? Well, they didn't want to, they didn't want to simply say, well, we, we were obviously wrong. Let's maybe take a second look at this passage and use traditional methods of exegesis. What they did is they said, well, we have to adjust that date because uh, the Seventh Day War, Israel didn't get Jerusalem until 1967. So now, Christ is going to come back by 2007. Or they could simply say, well, Christ, people who were born in 2000, people who were born in 1967 will still be alive when Christ returns. And that's the, the smart thing to say. So that stretches it out, really, 70 years, 80 years past 1967. And that, so that's still the popular view. 1948, 76 years ago. So they've changed the starting date from 1948 to 67 because 67 is when the Jews actually got Jerusalem in the Six-Day War in the Temple Mount. <clears throat> Second, due to the idea that we are in the terminal generation, prophecy teachers spend a great deal of time trying to connect current events to what was prophesied in Matthew 24. And, you know, we could call this newspaper exegesis, newspaper interpretation. And this is why modern prophecy speakers are so popular, is because they're taking events that are happening now, like the oil crisis or the Iraq war or the war in Ukraine, and they're tying, or even older writers, Hitler and Mussolini, and they're saying, this is uh, signs that Christ is coming back in our generation, and people get all excited. Now, the problem with this approach is that if we apply chapter 24 to the whole earth, the seven continents, uh, which contain well over 150 nations, the signs become rather meaningless. For a planet, on planet earth, there are always wars, there are always earthquakes, and there are always famines. There are periods in earth's history after our Lord's prophecy with great plagues, the Black Death, Great earthquakes, severe famines. Uh, there was, a, in the 6th century, there was a, a, a great problem with the crops and severe famines and so forth. One can uh, find writers in virtually every century in the church, in church history, who apply the signs of Matthew 24 to their own generation. The Montanists, as early as the 2nd century, Martin Luther, the Russian Mennonites, to Christians writing about the Civil War, World War I and World War II, the oil crisis, the Iraq War, the, the war in Ukraine, etc., etc. It's going on even as I speak. Russia's going to uh, conquer Ukraine and then it's going to attack Israel and come from the north. <laughs> That's what we're told. Now, as we critique these common views, there are a number of areas that we need to consider. First, Number one, does the parable of the fig tree refer to 
the organization of Israel into a nation in 1948, or the Jewish nation finally capturing Jerusalem in 1967. The most popular prophecy writer says that this is the most important sign, and then says, this is Hal Lindsey writing in 1971, if this is a correct deduction, then within 40 years or so of 1948, all these things, and he's smart, he doesn't say will take place, he says could take place. He's very careful if you read The Great Planet Earth. Uh, continuing, many scholars who have studied Bible prophecy all their lives believe that this is so. That's page 54 of The Late Great Planet Earth. There are a number of serious problems with this interpretation. First, There is no indication within the text itself that the fig tree is being used as a symbol of Israel. If you're going to talk about a symbol for a nation, you want to find something in the context, at least, that says that that's what's being done. For example, in Jeremiah, he's prophesying against Israel, and he compares Israel to first ripe figs and then rotten figs. Israel's become rotten. And it's quite clear he's using that to refer to Israel. There's nothing in this passage that indicates that at all. The point of the illustration is that when one sees branches putting forth their leaves after winter, one knows that summer is near. It's a very obvious if A, then B. <coughs> the point of the illustration is that when all the signs just described are observed, then the coming of Jesus in, I would say, in judgment upon Israel, is near. Right at the door. The parable is not saying anything about Israel, but is telling us a time indicator about our Lord's coming. And then second, <coughs> the parallel in the Gospel of Luke. Matthew is written to a primarily Jewish audience. Luke written to a primarily Gentile audience. The parallel passage in Luke makes it explicit that the naming of the fig tree does not have some special meaning for Israel. In Luke 21, 29, Jesus says, Behold the fig tree and all the trees. <clears throat> Did you catch that? Behold the fig tree, a common tree in Israel, and all the trees. As soon as they put forth leaves. So one cannot single, one cannot single out the fig tree and give it some special prophetic meaning unless it can be applied to all the trees, and of course this is impossible. <clears throat> to single out the fig tree, given the passage in Luke, is what we would say, it's arbitrary. It's arbitrary. And then third, Israel is compared to many things in the Old Testament. A grapevine, pomegranate, olive trees, palm trees, Cedar trees, and yes, it's com Israel's compared to figs, usually negatively. <laughs> the predominant symbols for Israel, though, are not fig trees, the ripe and then the rotten fig trees of Jeremiah 24, but the olive tree. The central symbol of Israel is the olive tree, and that's what Paul uses in Romans 11, 16 to 24. Israel's the olive tree. Some branches are broken off because of un unbelief. The Gentiles have been grafted onto the olive tree. And then when Israel believes, again, they'll be put back on the olive tree. What makes the olive tree special? Faith, not blood. If you don't have faith, you're broken off the olive tree. And then, of course, a secondary 
uh, if you're going to say there's a secondary main thing about Israel, it would be the it would be the grapevine. And of course, Jesus uses that for the church in John 15, 1 to 11. The fig tree fantasy of Hal Lindsey, Dave Hunt, and many, many others, I mean, there's literally dozens of men teaching this, has nothing to do with the Bible, and it violates all normal biblical procedures of interpretation. Doctrines are not to be supported by speculation. It's speculation. Where in the context are we told that the fig tree represents Israel? We're not. The whole point, as we noted from Luke, the whole point is when you see these things happening, great earthquakes, famines, wars, and of course that's referring to Israel and the Roman Empire. It's not, if it referred to the whole world, it would be meaningless because there's, there's, there's been over 50 wars since World War II. <laughs> there have been several famines since World War II. There's earthquakes on the, in the earth as a whole every day. So if you apply it to the whole world, it becomes rather meaningless. Now let's look at the second thing, this generation. Number two, a careful study of the expression, this generation, as it is used in Scripture, and especially the Gospels, reveals that Jesus is speaking about his own generation, not one 2,000 years in the future. And the context of Matthew 24 is especially illuminating. Note how the Gospels take great care in documenting the unfaithfulness and the wickedness of the Jewish leadership and nation. <clears throat> Much of Matthew chapter 21 and 22 and almost all of chapter 23 is concerned with the wickedness of the Jews in rejecting Christ and persecuting his prophets, both past and future. They persecuted the prophets in the past and put them to death, and they're going to persecute the apostles and the New Testament evangelists, and they're going to murder them. Serious stuff. Because we're, what we're talking about in Matthew 24 is covenant sanctions against Israel for unbelief and disobedience, radical disobedience. Jesus also carefully explains that the behavior of the Jews has filled the cup of God's wrath, that total destruction and permanent removal of covenant privileges is coming. And of course, Matthew, I mean, Romans chapter 11 will make it clear that there is a future when all Israel will be saved, there's a future for Israel. But it, it's thousands of years in the future from when Jesus is speaking here. Jesus is talking about the removal of covenant privileges as a nation. Israel will connect with Christ again, their Messiah, but it will be through faith in the future. The all-important question is when? <clears throat> and the answer to this question is the generation living when Jesus spoke his words of judgment. And he said, this is Matthew 23, 35, On you, who's he talking to? The scribes and the Pharisees. <coughs> May come all the righteous blood shed on earth. Matthew 23, 35. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Matthew 23, 36. See, Matthew 23, 38, your house is left to you desolate. Then in chapter 24, after listing a number of signs that precede the end, that is the coming of God in judgment and the destruction of Jerusalem, our Lord once again asserts, Matthew 24, 34, Assuredly, I say to you, truly I say to you, this generation will by no means pass till all these things take place. <clears throat> and I'm not going to deal with it today, but you know, Jesus says he's, but there's a prophecy of the second coming in there. 
No, not if you look at the Greek carefully. When you see the sign that the Son of Man is in heaven, that's the proper translation, not the New American Standard Version, the destruction of Jerusalem and Israel, the covenant sanctions are brought by the resurrected Christ against them. And that is proof that Jesus is now ruling as king in heaven. Christ's words are very clear and easy to understand. They leave no room for controversy. Jesus taught that his prophecy of doom, at least up to verse 34, must take place within the lifetime of the existing generation. <clears throat> but what about the futurist contention that the word generation, genia, in Matthew 24, 43, really means, that uh, must be 24, I mean, really means, uh, really means race or nation. That even uh, that many or even most of the events prior to verse 34 refer to the distant future, the second bodily coming of Christ. Well, there are a number of solid exegetical reasons for rejecting the common futurist understanding of a generation. And we'll look at these real quickly. Now, I note that conservative scholars, a lot of them see the second coming in Matthew 24, prior to verse 34. And what they do is, is they say, well, this refers primarily to judgment on Israel, but has a secondary fulfillment in the second coming of Christ. That's what some do. Others will say, this is an insertion of the future in a prophecy about the destruction of Israel. That's what others will say. That's not necessary once you understand what these things mean according to the Old Testament usage of these expressions that Jesus is using. First, there's the immediate context of Matthew 36, 23, 36. The words, this generation cannot refer to a nation or race thousands of years in the future. It can only refer to the leaders and people living at that time. Jesus addresses the scribes and Pharisees personally. He uses the pronoun you 26 times. He's talking to an audience. Then he laments over Jerusalem. All commentators agree that the word generation in Matthew 36, 23, 36 refers to the group of people living at the time our Lord uttered these words. Even, the New Schofield Reference Bible says, quote, the prediction of verse 36, he's talking about chapter 23, was fulfilled in the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, end of quote. Given the fact that the Jews used the word the generation with a specific meaning in 2336, it is exegetically ir uh, irresponsible to assert that only moments later, when discussing the same topic, Matthew 24, 2, the disciples asked Jesus, when are these things going to take place? What things? The things he just described in chapter 23, the destruction of Jerusalem. So we're supposed to believe that in chapter 23, he refers to that generation then living, and then moments later, in the same discourse, actually it's not the same discourse, this is when they go and they sit down and Jesus explains it to them privately, but we're talking the same day and says this generation and uses it in a completely different meaning. That, that's crazy. That's a crazy interpretation, but that's popular. <clears throat> so according to that view, our Lord, without warning or explanation, using, using the identical word in an almost identical statement, gives it a completely new and different meaning. Further, the common practice of Jesus in the Gospels was to teach the multitudes and then privately to give further instruction regarding his public teaching to his close disciples. In these teaching sessions, Christ would answer questions and clarify his doctrines. 
He wanted to make sure the apostles understood what he had to say. Given this pattern, does it make sense to, that our Lord would give a statement to the apostles in, tw- in 2434 that would all, they would uh, most certainly misunderstand? Jesus. Now they're private. They're sitting on the Mount of Olives. They can see the city. Jesus, tell us when these things are going to be. And Jesus says, not one stone will be left upon another. And then he describes signs that are signs for that. And then we're supposed to believe he's talking about all of a sudden he switches to 2,000 years in the future. Second, the broader context proves that Jesus was referring to the contemporary generation. If one carefully examines every occurrence of the word generation, Ganea, and the Gospels, and I've got about 20 listed, one will well, 15 or so, one will note that the word always refers to a specific generation living at the same period of time. There's a one possible exception in Luke. I think it's Luke 16. We'll examine three different manners in which the word is used. First, there's passages that speak of generations in history. That is, the totality of the covenant people living during a specific period of time. <clears throat> Matthew 1.17. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David until the captivity, uh, in Babylon are 14 generations. Luke one fifty. The mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. Now, if one attempted to translate generation as race in these passages, he would end up with a, a totally absurd meaning. There would be 42 different races of Jews between Abraham and Christ. Second, the word generation is frequently coupled with a scathing criticism of our Lord's contemporaries. An evil and adulterous generation. Matthew 12. 39, a wicked and adulterous generation, Matthew 16, 4. A faithless and perverse generation, Matthew 17, 17, and Luke 9, 41. This adulterous and sinful generation, Mark 8, 38. A fa- this faithless generation, Luke 9, 41. This perverse generation, Acts 2, 40. In these passages, generation clearly refers to the people of Israel alive during Christ's ministry, and then, of course, in the book of Acts, the, the ministry of the apostles. Not only are these criticisms directed to his contemporaries, the scribes and the Pharisees, for example, Matthew 12, 39 and 16, 4, they are often coupled with the lament, how long shall I be with you? <clears throat> Mark 9, 19 and Luke 9, 41. By far the most common usage of the term comes with the formula, this generation. Hegenea hate. It occurs 18 times in the Gospels. I have them listed out. The reason that this formula is found so frequently on the lips of Jesus is that he repeatedly condemned the Jews for their unbelief and wicked behavior. The Jews have been waiting for over a thousand years for their Messiah. Well over a thousand. And the Messiah finally comes. And they reject him. They don't believe him. They don't believe he's the Messiah. They call him a magician. They call him a blasphemer. They persecute his disciples. The men of Nazareth and the queen of the south will condemn this generation on the day of judgment because they did not repent at the preaching of the Messiah. Matthew 12, 41, 42, Luke 11, 31, 32. The Jews repeatedly asked Jesus to show them a sign. Mark 8, 11, Luke 11, 29, our Lord responded by saying, no sign will be given to this generation. Mark 8, 12. Except the sign of Jonah the prophet, Luke 
11.29, which of course refers to the resurrection. As the day of Christ's betrayal drew near, Jesus said, But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Luke 17.25 When our Lord prophesied to the Jews regarding their coming destruction, he said, Assuredly I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Then we got Matthew 24, 34, Mark 13, 30, Luke 21, 32, and see Matthew 23, 36, and Luke 11, 49 to 51. The words this generation obviously apply to the exist existing generation of the Jewish nation to whom Jesus spoke. Indeed, in all of the passages above, they are incapable of any other interpretation. Those who argue that Jesus was referring to a race or a nation more than 2,000 years in the future can only do so by intruding their eschatological presuppositions upon the text. No one in the original audience would have understood our Lord's words in this manner. In fact, the only reason that Christians today suddenly change the meaning of generation when they come to Matthew 4 is that they have been trained to do so. They've been taught to do so. Same with the rapture, the nonsense regarding the, the secret rapture. No one would ever come up with that by studying scripture. It's a presupposition added to scripture. And then third, the idea that this generation refers to a group of people in the distant future cannot be reconciled with the normal meaning of the, of the word this. The adjective this has a specific meaning. It designates the person or thing mentioned or understood. Like I say, this apple, this car, this is my wife, this is my dog, this is my pet bird. There's a specific reference to a certain thing. Webster's Unabridged Dictionary says, designating the thing that is near, distinguished from that. This is my wife, that is Bob's wife over there. This is... This, near, that. When somebody says this house or this car or this person, they obviously are not referring to a different house, car, or person in the future. To use the adjective this in such a manner would render meaningful discourse impossible. When Matthew wrote his gospel, he used the normal existing rules of grammar, this day, 611, this man, 89, this city, 1023, this place, 12.6, this people, 15.8, this rock, 15.18, this little child, 18.4, this mountain, 21.21, this stone, 21.44, this image, 22.20, this gospel, 24.14, this woman, 26.13, and this night, 26.31, etc. If some future generation had been in view, Jesus could have chosen the adjective that. See, for example, 722, 10:19, 24:10, 36:26:29. The passage would then read this way: That generation will not pass away until all these things take place. If you're talking about a future generation, you wouldn't say this generation; you'd say that generation. I drive a Toyota Corolla, but that man over there drives a Rolls Royce. Fourth, Christ's audience could only have understood the phrase this generation is applying to their own generation. 
All books on biblical interpretation or hermeneutics emphasize the importance of taking into consideration the way in which words, phrases, and expressions would have been understood by a contemporary audience. The phrase, this generation, did not occur in a vacuum. We have noted how our Lord used the word generation with qualifying criticisms, an evil and adulterous generation, etc., Matthew 12, 39, throughout his ministry to condemn his apathetic, unbelieving, wicked contemporaries. Jesus preached for three and a half years. He preached all over Israel. He preached to huge crowds. And after his death and resurrection, how many disciples did he have? 120. Out of a nation of over two million people. After preaching, and not just preaching, he's the best preacher in history, but not only that, but miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. And yet, after all that, there's only 120 people in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. That's it. Out of millions of people. <clears throat> and we've already noted how th that this generation is used in Matthew 23, 36, after Jesus used the pronoun you 26 times. In Matthew 24, our Lord continues to use the phrase this generation in the same manner. Speaking directly to the disciples, looking into their eyes, Jesus said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you, verse 4. You will hear of wars, verse 6. See that you are not troubled, verse 6. They will deliver you to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations, verse 9. When you see the abomination of desolation, verse 15. So also when you see all these things, know that they that the end is near at the doors, verse 34. Assuredly, I say to, uh, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place, verse 34. Now, given all these things, we can say with assurance that the disciples most likely took Christ's words at face value. Why wouldn't they? Jesus, tell us when Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. And, and Jesus assures them, not one stone will be left upon another. According to, according to some scholars, they tore the temple apart block by block because when the, they set the temple on fire and it burned and the temple was covered, there was all gold all over the place and the gold melted and got in the cracks. So they pried every stone of that temple apart to get every piece of gold out of it they could. And Jesus' words were fulfilled literally. If one accepts the futurist interpretation of Matthew 24, 5-34, then one has accepted an interpretation of which the apostles were almost certainly ignorant. The futurist view, which takes, this, which takes generation in the sense of race or nation in the distant future, would have completely baffled the apostles. Would our Lord switch the meaning of metaphors and repeatedly use the plural form of you in Matthew 24 if he wanted the apostles to understand him? Obviously not. Yet note how Jesus opens the discourse. Verse 4, take heed that no one deceives you. He's looking right into the eyes of the apostles. Who's with him? The 11. Actually, uh, he hasn't been betrayed yet, so it would have been the 12. He's looking into the eyes of the apostles. Take heed that no one deceives you. You say to your wife, I want you to cook me dinner. And she comes to you later, well, I didn't cook dinner. I say, well, why? Well, you were referring to a woman in, in 2,000 years in the future. You'd say, well, that's kind of ridiculous. In other words, make sure that you understand what I am saying so that you will not be fooled by false teachers, verse 5. 
And the evidence for the fulfillment of the prophecy events discussed prior to verse 34 taking place in that air generation is overwhelming. And that brings us, and by the way, I am not teaching and I emphatically reject, if you've ever heard of something called full preterism or pantalism or whatever, the idea that Christ returned bodily in AD 70, that Christ, the second coming of Christ is AD 70, that's a, that's a damnable heresy. It's totally false and totally absurd. Christ came in judgment upon Jerusalem in 67 to 70. He hasn't come back bodily yet because obviously he's still in heaven. When he comes back bodily, there'll be the final resurrection. There'll be the, there'll be the rapture. There'll be the final resurrection of the dead. Uh, there'll be the beginning of a future state. And all sin and death and everything will be destroyed. So the idea that Christ came back bodily, which is taught by full preterists, is heretical nonsense and that anybody could believe something so stupid amazes me, yet it's believed by many people. It's absolute stupidity. It's a rejection of all the creeds and confessions of the church from the apostles to the present. It's anti-Christian all the way. So don't get the impression that I'm teaching full preterism. I'm not. Christ describes the destruction of Jerusalem. The second coming, obviously, the bodily coming, obviously hasn't happened. As long as there's graveyards full of dead bodies, Christ hasn't come back yet. That's obvious. Now, this analysis raises an important question. If standard humanitical procedures lead to the only uh, one viable conclusion, this generation must be applied to the generation of Jews living when our Lord utter these words, circa AD 30, then why do the vast majority of commentators insist that the word generation must refer to the Jewish race or the generation? I, that's, that's an overstatement. Some commentators believe it refers to the future, because I, I looked up several commentaries from Calvin all the way up to the 20th century, and they all say it's referring to the Jews of that generation. The simple reason that their, their expositions interpret many sections of, the, of discourse prior to verse 34 is clearly referring to the second bodily coming of Christ. Some of the phrases that are taken as indisputable proof of the futurist view are the gospel will be preached in all the world, then the end will come. Verse 14. There will be great tribulation, such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time, nor ever shall be. Verse 30, 21. For as lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also shall be the coming of the Son of Man. B. Verse 27. The stars will fall from heaven. Verse 29. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Verse 30. They, his angels, will gather the elect from the four winds. Obviously, if any of the verses prior to verse 31 speak of the second bodily coming of Christ to judge the quick and the dead, which everyone except spiritually blind hyperpreterists, uh, teaches, knows uh, knows that Christ hasn't returned yet. And I'm, I don't have time to get to it today, but all of these phrases that we've used, if you study how they're used in the Old Testament, they're speaking of situations of judgment. The angels will gather the four, the corners of the elect from the Roman Empire before the Christ returns in AD 70. The coming on the clouds is judgment language used in the prophets for the destruction of Israel in the Old Testament, and so forth. Evangelical scholars who rightly accept biblical inerrancy cannot say, as modernists often do, modernists just say, well, Jesus made a mistake. He, he taught the disciples that he was coming back in that generation, and he was wrong. No, nonsense. If you understand Matthew 24, Jesus, it's a sign that the Son of Man is in heaven at the right hand of God. It's a sign that he's ruling as king. It's a sign of his victorious resurrection and redemption. It's not a sign of the second coming. 
that Jesus made a blatant error when he gave the time indicator is this generation uh, is totally accepted by modernists. And that's why it's important that we understand partial preterism or the idea that a lot of events did take place in AD 70. But the second coming obviously has not occurred, but a lot of things did occur. The divorce of Israel, the, the judgment of Israel. This point explains the contrived eisegetical and absurd attempts at redefining this generation in Matthew 24:34. If, however, our Lord's apocalyptic language is interpreted in light of identical imagery found in the Old Testament prophets, the prophecy comes into focus. Indeed, without a careful examin examination of relevant Old Testament texts, one will invariably think in terms of the second coming. But we must let Scripture interpret Scripture. And I didn't take the time to do that uh, today, but I, I wrote a book on this, I don't know, 20 years ago. And, uh, of course, uh, The Last Day's Madness by Gary DeMar is excellent <clears throat> on the score. Uh, Jesus is using Old Testament terminology to describe judgment. You have to understand that for example, here's the phrase, the day of the Lord. You look at the Old Testament, get a concordance out. The day of the Lord is an expression used of several judgments in the Old Testament. Uh, but the day of the Lord is also used of the second coming of Christ. So there's judgments in history. And of course, once Christ is risen from the dead, the theanthropic mediator at the right hand of God the Father, he's in charge of judgments on planet Earth from that time on. He's in charge. If, if a nation is judged, like Russia, for example, Christ is the one who did it. He's in charge of it. So, but the day of the Lord with capital letters hasn't happened yet. That's the second coming. Fifth, the interpretation which holds that Matthew 24 up to verse 34 refers to coming and judgment upon Israel in Jesus' own generation is supported by other passages. And we'll briefly consider these passages in order to dispel the erroneous notion that every mention of Christ's coming must refer to our Lord's second bodily coming at the end of history. Here's a passage, uh, Matthew 10, 22 to 23. When you, he's talking to the apostles, when you, the apostles, and you, the apostles, will be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. When they persecuted you to this city, flee to another. For assuredly I say to you, the apostles, he's talking to the apostles, for surely I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. What do you mean? They can't refer to the second coming. It has to refer to his coming in judgment. Because 2,000 years later, that's kind of an irrelevant statement. The apostles are all long dead. They've been dead for almost 2,000 years. The references to the time of judgment that came upon the Jewish people at the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans. It, is, it was a time of divine judgment. It was Christ, too, who was doing the judging. He came to judge. He sat upon his judgment throne, and he pronounced a sentence of condemnation, and he delivered up the guilty nation to the hand of the executioner. People have to understand the lordship of Christ. The lordship of Christ is not simply, yeah, he's Lord, you better obey the Ten Commandments and put away sin. That's critical, obviously. 
but he's also the ruler of Psalm 2, Psalm 110. He's the ruler over the nations, and those nations that rebel against, that's why the United States is so scary what's going on right now. All this pro-homosexuality laws, all these anti-Christian laws, sodomite marriage and no-fault divorce, and all this garbage that's going on, this propagated primarily by Democrats who are satanic to the core, this will doom our nation to judgment. And if you think the Great Depression was bad, you haven't seen anything yet. If you think World War II was bad, God can bring far worse. You know, the world is packed with nuclear weapons. So this is critical teaching. Christ is king. And if you don't bow the knee to Christ and you spit on his holy law, as Joe Biden and the Democrats do every day, and a lot of Republicans do as well, uh, expect judgment. It will come. So be out of debt. Make sure you got some arms. Uh, don't have any debt. Own property. Prepare. The coming here referred to as the terrible judgment which came upon the Jews in the war of the year 66, ending with the total destruction of Jerusalem. John Brown, the great uh, Presbyterian, writes this, The coming of the Son of Man has a fixed doctrinal sense. Here referring immediately to the crisis of Israel's uh, history as the visible kingdom of God when Christ was to come and judge it, when the wrath would come upon it to the uttermost, 1 Thessalonians 2.16, and when, on the ruins of Jerusalem in the old economy, he would establish his own kingdom. By the way, the partial, this idea, well, if you're a partial preterist, you're just as bad as a full preterist. Uh, John Calvin was a partial preterist. Matthew Poole was a partial preterist. Uh, John Brown of Haddington was a partial preterist. Uh, Matthew Henry was a partial preterist. C.H. Spurgeon was a partial preterist. So this idea that you, you have to be a futurist or you're some kind of heretic, that's pure nonsense. Another important passage is Matthew 16, 27 to 28. For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. Now listen to this. Listen to what Jesus says to the audience. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Here's the parallel passage in Mark. Assuredly, truly, 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 I say to you, that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. That's Mark 9.1. What, is, what does he mean by the kingdom present with power? Well, the Bible makes a distinction. The, the coming of the kingdom occurs when Jesus is born and, and starts his ministry. But the kingdom with power, according to Romans chapter 1 and Matthew 28 and other passages, Ephesians chapter 1, the kingdom with power doesn't happen until the resurrection of Christ from the dead and he ascends to the right hand of God the Father. And the great sign that this is accomplished, and this sign is designed to tell all Israel, you killed the Messiah, is the destruction of Jerusalem. Jesus taught that his coming would take place during the lifetime of, of some of his contemporaries. What then does the coming refer to? Now, many commentators see this passage as problematic and offer various opinions as to his meaning. Many believes to the, many think he's referring to the Transfiguration. Richard Baxter, J.C. Ryle, William L. Lane. Others think it refers to the resurrection of Christ. Luther, Melanchthon, Calvin, Lang. 
a Lutheran. Still others to the outpouring of the spirit of Pentecost. Henry Barclay Sweet, Gleason Archer. The problem with all these interpretations is that they all point to events that are only days or weeks in the future. The whole point of our Lord's statement, some standing here will not taste death, is irrelevant if his coming is only a few days or weeks away. You'd be like me saying, there are some standing here who will not taste death till I mow the lawn next week. That's an idiotic statement. But if it's a prophecy about something 40 years in the future, it makes perfect sense. There are some people that are alive now who will see the great judgment in, in about 40 years from now. That makes sense. Jesus' language implies that most of them would be dead, while a few of them would live to see the great event, which is precisely what happened. John was still alive, probably. Paul was not. Well, Paul died 66, 67. But, but John was probably still alive. So the coming of Christ refers to a ju coming in judgment upon Jerusalem and the apostate nation of Israel. The parousia of Christ may be viewed in a narrow sense as referring to his coming at the end of the world, but also in a wider sense as including the preliminary judgments in particular that visited upon the Jews. I think Christ came in judgment during World War I. I think Christ came in judgment during World War II and the Great Depression. The nations, the Western nations, rejected the gospel. They rejected the Bible. And they turned to secular humanism. And they were judged for it. And now... They've openly rejected the law of God. You know, at least they gave lip service to the law until after the 1960s. And now the law is open, of God is openly spit upon and spurned. What will happen? And this interpretation that it's a coming in judgment is superior for a number of reasons. The few comports with our Lord's own time indicator. Christ's visitation of wrath upon the jurors occurred about 40 years after he spoke these words. Thus, while many of the saints had perished through persecution in old age, some still remained. Also, the context of both passages is a discussion of the cost of discipleship. Following Jesus in that wicked generation will mean denial, pain, and persecution. The purpose of these passages is to show the disciples that the cost of discipleship is well worth it. Yeah, you're going to deny self. Yeah, you're going to deny many pleasures of the world. Yeah, you're going to be hated by the worldly and the atheists and the agnostics and, and the false religionists. Yeah, you're going to be hated. Yeah, you're going to be ridiculed. Yeah, you're going to be gossiped about and slandered. But a time is coming when they're going to get their rear ends kicked and you're going to be ushered into paradise. A time is coming when they're going to be judged and you're not. God spares his people. The suffering and humiliation of the saints will be vindicated by an awesome manifestation of the glorified Savior's power as the eschatological judge. The kingdom with power means that the destruction of the Jewish nation, that with the destruction of the Jewish nation, Jesus openly manifested his power and glory as the king of the nations who sits at the right hand of God. The ordinary workings of the kingdom are invisible, but in this judgment upon the Jews, the royal rule of Jesus and power would actually be seen as fulfilling what he now tells us here. 
as lightning goes from the east to the west, you're going to see the manifestation of my judgment. And they saw the Romans, the vast Roman armies marching around Jerusalem with their eagles on their banners. The slaughter began. And anyone who had heard Jesus' prophecy had to admit it was coming true perfectly. Here's what Matthew Henry says. Here is number one, a prediction of Christ's kingdom now approaching. Matthew 9.1 That which is fourfold is, one, that the kingdom of God would come, and would come so as to be seen. The kingdom of the Messiah will be set up in the world by the utter destruction of the Jewish polity, which stood in the way of it. This was the restoring of the kingdom of God among men, which had been in a manner lost by the woeful degeneracy both of Jews and Gentiles. Number two, that it would come with power, so as to make its own way and bear down the opposition that was given to it. It came with power, with vengeance, was taken, when vengeance was taken upon the Jews for crucifying Christ, and when it conquered the idolatry of the Gentile world. Number three, it would come with some new present, uh, while, uh, while some now present were alive. There are some standing here that shall not taste death till they see it. This speaks the same of Matthew 24, 34. This generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. Those that were standing with, here with Christ should see it when the others could not discern it to be the kingdom of God, for it came not with observation. So there's Matthew Henry preaching partial preterism. Jesus said his trial. You'll see the Son of Man at the right hand of power. He's talking about his exaltation after his resurrection. In addition, this interpretation is supported by Matthew 26, 63 to 64. And the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, It is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Coming on the clouds of heaven in the Old Testament is used at, for Jehovah coming out of heaven to judge the nations. Here it's used of Christ, the divine human mediator. After identifying himself as the Christ, the Son of the God, our Lord applies Psalm 110.1 and Daniel 7.13-14 directly to himself. The phrase, you will see, it's not a reference to the second coming and the final judgment, but a reference to Jesus' manifestation of power in the destruction of Jerusalem and the Jewish nation. This point is evident from the phrase, coming on the clouds, which in Scripture symbolizes divine judgment. Psalm 104-3, Isaiah 19.1, Nehemiah 1.3, Matthew 24.30, Revelation 1.7. The word hereafter, which is equivalent to soon. Jesus, in essence, is telling the high priest and his accomplices that, yes, I am the Messiah. However, you will not see the power you expect in this office until I am glorified and exhibit my power by destroying you and your unbelieving comrades. What shocking language. He's talking to the leaders of the nation. He's talking to the religious and political leaders of Israel. And he's telling them to their face, I'm coming back in judgment upon you. You will see it. And you will know that my gospel was true. You will know I am the Son of God. You will know I am the divine human mediator. You will know the gospel is true. 
but they'll know by their destruction. Another passage that speaks of Christ coming in the, in the first uh, century is John 21, 21 to 22. Peter, seeing him, the apostle John, said to Jesus, but Lord, what about this man? Okay, because Peter, Jesus had indicated that Peter's going to die. Jesus said to him, if I will that he remains till I come, what is that to you? The coming in this passage cannot refer to Pentecost, where both Peter and John were still alive. Nor can it refer to the second coming, the second bodily coming of Christ, for both apostles have already long died. The only logical alternative is that Jesus promised the preservation of John's life until the great judgment and the fall of Jerusalem. It is a fact of history that all the apostles died before the destruction of Jerusalem, A.D. 70, except the apostle John. The great Lutheran commentator, Hengstenberg, writes this. The coming of Jesus could not have been an individual, uh, could not have had an individual meaning in relation to John, nor the coming to take him in the hour of death. Chapter 14.3. For in this sense the Lord came even to Peter. But we must find a sense in which John remained and Peter did not until Christ came. If the judgment was one of universal import, we must think, needs think at once that the Lord's coming in judgment upon Jerusalem, concerning which he had said, Matthew 26, 28, Verily I say to you, there will be some standing here who shall not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Compare Mark 9, 1, Matthew 14, 34. Which teaches that the generation was not to pass before the sign of the Son of Man would be seen in heaven. Peter fulfilled his course in martyrdom some a few years before that catastrophe. John, on the other hand, survived that great and solemn coming of Jesus. End of quote. So there are accordingly very good biblical grounds for interpreting Matthew 24, 4 to 34 as a coming judgment, a day of the Lord on the temple, the city, the people, a coming in judgment, a coming to destroy. Sixth, the view that the generation refers to the Jews then alive is supported by most Greek scholars and commentators. After noting that Ganea can mean a, a clan or race or, or kind in ancient Greek literature, Walter Bauer cites Luke 16.8 as the only possible New Testament example of such a usage. He writes, he continues, basically the sum total of those born at the same time expanded to include all those living at a given time, a generation, contemporaries. Jesus looks upon the whole contemporary generation of Jews as a uniform mass confronting him. And then he gives several passages. <clears throat> Bauer note includes Matthew 24, 34, and its parallels as examples of the contemporaries. B, after Thayer discusses the classical Greek use of Gene, he writes, the whole multitude of men living at the same time, and he gives several passages. Once again, note that Matthew 24, 34, and its parallels are cited. C, Greek scholar, V. Hassler writes, of the, 30, of the 43 references to Gene in the New Testament, 33 are in the synoptic, and the word refers in 25 of the occurrences to the Jewish people in the time of Jesus, 17 times in the expression, this generation. In other words, every time the expression, this generation, occurs in the synoptic offals, it refers to the Jewish people living in the time of Jesus. D. After noting that Ginema in the New Testament means race, stock, or family, Abbot Smith writes regarding Ginea, of all the people of a given period, and then he gives Matthew 24, 34, and Mark 13, 30, and Luke 21, 34 as examples. A.T. Robertson, the great Baptist scholar, writes, he's one of the greatest Greek scholars in history, quote, in the Old Testament, a generation was reckoned as 40 years. This is the natural way to take Matthew 24, verses 34 
as of 33 Bruce. All things were meaning the same in both verses. F. Bouchel writes, in the New Testament, Ganea is common in the synoptic, rare in Paul, absent from John, including Revelation, is a purely formal concept. It always it is always identified. It mostly denotes generation in the sense of contemporaries. We have the formula often, Hoganea uh, Hate, this generation, and then he gives several examples. This generation will be understood temp, uh, temporarily. And then G. Morgenthaler writes, in Matthew it is a sense of this generation, according to the, the, to the first of January, so Jesus expected the end of this age to occur in connection with the judgment of Jerusalem at the time of the first generation. See Mark 9.1 and Matthew 16.18. And then H. Conrad, these are also Greek scholars, Hebrew door, uh, Aramaic dar, and Greek genea refer to a period of time loosely defined as the time between a parent's prime and that of his child. Those living at a given time in history are referred to as a generation, Jeremiah 2.21, Matthew 11.16, and can be characterized as a whole. For example, as a perverse and crooked generation, Deuteronomy 32.5, as a faithless and perverse generation, Luke 9.31, and then Cranwell says that Genea refers to the people of a period, this generation shall not pass away, Luke 21.34. And then uh, this generation in Matthew uh, 23 and 24 refers to the contemporaries of Jesus and the apostles is the interpretation of John Calvin, Matthew Poole, David Dixon, Matthew Henry, John Gill, J.A. Alexander, the great Princeton teacher, uh, James Morrison of Scotland, Thomas Scott, John Lightfoot, C.H. Spurgeon, Ezra P. Gould, Alfred Plummer, Henry Barclay Sweet, R.V.G. Tasker, William L. Lane, Beasley Murray, Robert Gundry, etc., then you'll have others like other modern commentators will will try to say, well, Jesus slipped in something about the second coming in his discourse here. He glimpses to the distant future. That's not necessary, especially when you look at the literal Greek, which we have to look at at some subsequent time. <clears throat> I better stop here. And then seventh, I'll just do one more. This generation means the generation alive when Christ spoke his words is supported by audience relevance. Throughout the discourse, our Lord looked the disciples in the eyes and used the personal pronoun you 26 times. In the illustration of the fig tree, Jesus said, So you also, when you see all these things, know that the end is near at the doors. Matthew 24, 33. The expression you shall see would not be proper if spoken of something that the hearers would none of them live to witness, which would not take place for thousands of years. Further, that this generation refers to the contemporary generation of Jesus, supported by the repeated use of the phrase, all these things. After the scathing condemnation of the Jewish leaders of his day and the promise of severe judgment, our Lord said, Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation, Matthew 23, 36. Then he added, See, your house is left to you desolate, 23, 38. Remember, they wanted to crucify Christ, and you know, we better get rid of this guy. You know, we don't want the Romans destroying our house, our temple. Then when Jesus and the disciples left the temple area and the disciples pointed out the magnificence of the buildings, Christ said, do you not see all these things? 24.2. And the statement is immediately followed by a prophecy of the destruction of the temple complex. Not one stone shall be left upon another, which happened literally. Then when the disciples were seated on the Mount of Olives overlooking the temple complex, their minds were still engrossed in the Savior's words regarding all these things. They asked, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things will be revealed? 
Mark 13, 4, obviously referring to what Jesus was just talking about in Matthew 23, right? To say otherwise would be to violate the English language or any language. Then toward the end of the discourse, Jesus warned his disciples to be on the alert, and our Lord said, when you see all these things, Matthew 24, 33. Then to close this discussion of the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, our Lord said, assuredly I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Verse 34. The expression, all these things, is repeated with explicit reference to the destruction of Jerusalem in 2336, 24.2, 20, and 3, and 24.33. It should be obvious to any unbiased interpreter that the phrase, all these things, in Matthew 24.34, must refer to the same judgment event predicted in Matthew 23.36 and 24.2-3. That precipitated the disciples' all these things question in Matthew 24.3. This is the only interpretation which the words will bear. Any other involves a wrestling of language and a violence to common understanding. And then I'll end with this quote. This is from J. Stuart Russell, a heretic. He's a full preterist. He's a heretic. He's not a Christian. But he has some good things to say in his commentary on Matthew. Um, he shows that the idea that it means race is absurd. Here's what he says. And we'll end with this. Imagine a prophet in our own times predicting a great catastrophe in which London would be destroyed. St. Paul in the Houses of Parliament, leveled to the ground, and a fearful slaughter of the inhabitants. And that when asked, when shall these things come to pass, he should reply, the Anglo-Saxon race shall not become extinct till all these things be fulfilled. <laughs> would this be a satisfactory answer? Would not such an answer be considered derogatory to the prophet and an affront to the hearers? Would they not have reason to say, it is safe prophesying that the event is placed in an indeterminable distance? But the bare proposition of such a sense of our Lord's prediction shows itself to be a redactio ad absurdum. Was it for this that the disciples were said to wait and watch? Was this lesson that the budding fig tree taught? Was it not until the Jewish nation was about to become extinct that they were to lock, look up and lift up their heads? Such a hypothesis is its own refutation. So, the modern eschatological system that everybody's taught today, most people, not reformed people, are generally not taught this, is nonsense. It's just bad exegesis. It's bad interpretation. It's sloppy. Do we believe in a literal, bodily second coming of Christ that has not occurred yet? Absolutely. And the Bible's crystal clear about that. And full preterists are damnable heretics and are idiots. Their interpretation is absolutely stupid. The Bible's crystal clear. 1 Corinthians 15. Your bodies, your physical body, which you die, that rots away, whether you're eaten by a shark or whether you freeze to death on Mount Everest, where you're killed in battle in World War II and go to the bottom of the ocean. Your dead body will be resurrected by Jesus Christ. The evil shall be, have a resurrection to the lake of fire. The righteous, a resurrection with a new glorified spiritual body that cannot sin. Bible's crystal clear. Death will be no more. No more tears. No more suffering. No more crying. No more sin. No more ability to sin. You'll have a glorified body that will not sin. You'll be better off than Adam was in the garden due to the work of Christ. So, yes, we still believe in the bodily second coming of Christ. But clearly, up to verse 34 in Matthew 24, Christ is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. And this idea that Christ must return in the generation when Israel became a nation, or when they got 
Jerusalem back. That's complete nonsense, simply made up. It's not based on scripture at all. So, you know, should we be ready for the coming of Christ every single day? Absolutely. You should live as though you're going to die that day. But we don't have to have a false, stupid eschatology just because everybody else does. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for the coming of Christ in judgment. We thank you that he's king. We thank you that he rules from the right hand of heaven. We ask, Lord, that he would pour out his wrath and indignation upon Joe Biden, Pamela Harris, the liberals on the Supreme Court, the Democratic Party, all liberal Republicans. We pray, Lord, that you would pour out your wrath and indignation upon them and spare your people. We are a wicked generation, Lord, a generation full of adultery and fornication and theft, state theft. Black churches are full of, they preach theft. That's why they support the Democrats. They blame shift their own immorality and wickedness upon whites. They're a bunch of racists. We pray for judgment upon them by Christ, but we pray a revival would be preferred, that many would believe in Christ and turn to him and turn unto God and would love your law once again, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.